0: appreciate the, the thoughts you shared there this evening, Larry. The, the, the promise that we want to look at tonight is the fact that uh, God's promises, if we are faithful in the responsibility He has given to us, His promises will actually make us a partaker of His divine nature. There's something about that phrase that just so grips my heart. We have been promised that if we, by faith, follow Jesus— that we will become a partaker of His divine nature. It doesn't matter where you're at today. The promises are yes and yes. They're for us, and they're forward, as our brother pointed out to us. They take us forward. And so we so often uh, focus on what's happening in our lives right now, where we're at right now, how we're feeling right now, and we uh, lose sight of Jesus. And so the way I want to share this tonight is that uh, we have received such an incredible gift and being given forgiveness of sins, salvation through our faith in Jesus Christ. And we are called to be caretakers of that gift that he has given to us. And in Scripture, we see it likened unto a garment that we've been clothed with, that our spirit has been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. And we have a responsibility uh, to make right choices in order to keep those garments, our garment, that has been given to us, granted to us by the grace of God through Christ Jesus to keep it spotless. And it's a particular challenge, I believe, in our day. And I think that our young people um, in all of our congregations uh, just need to be encouraged to keep their eyes upon Jesus and to faithfully follow Him. The verse that I want to start with comes out of Second Peter, and it's in chapter 3, and it's in verse uh, 14. We, we notice that what Peter is, is doing is he's calling the people, he's calling his people, he's calling all of us today to recognize that the day of the Lord is going to come, and it's going to come as a thief, and that we have to be absolutely committed uh, to viewing life. If we're going to make right choices, we need to be committed to viewing life in, through the lenses of eternity. Uh, holding eternity, the reality of eternity before our hearts. And that's what he's telling us in verse 11. We drop to verse 14 where he says, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. And so he encourages us in our hearts that we hold this um, precious promise, if it can be so. It can be so. That when Jesus comes again, that you can be found without spot and blameless, as a, as a caretaker of the vineyard that he has given to you. I, um, I find it interesting we think about um, choices, choices. Uh, young people today live in a world that is filled with more choices than perhaps at any time in history. Uh, more voices that are calling out for the attention of our young people, and actually to all of our hearts, through uh, more channels, with all the media that we have, social media, the the access to the Internet. Uh, We live in a time of unprecedented pressure upon our hearts, unprecedented pressure upon our affections. And I think we do well to think about the fact that uh, God calls us to By faith, keep our focus on Jesus and to make decisions very, very carefully, to walk circumspectly. Um, So we live in a world that that believes in uh, the theory of rational choice. And the theory of rational choice goes like this, that if you give a people uh, options, they will generally always make decisions uh, for their own personal best interest. Did you get that? If you give people options, they will generally always make choices, decisions for their own best interests. Our country is built upon so-called freedom of choice, freedom of speech, freedom to bear arms, freedom of this, freedom of that, freedom to vote. Based on that theory of rational choice. To choose leaders that will uh, help you get to where you want to go in life. Theory of rational choice. And that spirit of the age that idolizes the freedom to make choices and the belief that I will make choices, if given choices, I will make choices that will be to my own best interest. Uh, the spirit of that age has come in upon the body of Christ in a very heavy way through all the pressures that we are under. Are you following me? Am I making sense to you? And it's interesting because God says, you know what? Love is not love unless there's a choice. Is that right? Now, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, there will be consequences. I'll give you the choice, though what do you want? Life or death? Light or darkness? The choice is yours. God gives us choices. But history tells us that the theory of rational choice is totally wrong, because when men are given a choice, they almost always, without fail, make choices that glorify man rather than choices that bring them into the holiness of God. And we don't have to go far into scriptures. Just a few chapters. And how did Adam and Eve do? With the theory of rational choice. How rational was their choice? Seriously, you think about it. Not very rational, was it? They knew that to eat from that tree would bring death and separation. And yet they chose to eat. And in our world today, Humanity is the same. We make choices centered around us. we, Me, myself, and I. How about Satan's choice? To uh, say, I will be like God. The first sin happened in a very amazing place, didn't it? Of all places, it happened in the glories of heaven, in the very presence of God. You wouldn't think that sin could ever, ever be in heaven. But when it comes to self-centeredness and pride, it'll show up in very amazing places. If you're honest with yourself, you might find it in your own heart. Me, myself, and I, that's what we all struggle with. And that is the very core of sin from before man was created. When Satan said, I want to call the shouts in my own life. I want to write the rules for who's in charge. Give me a chance to be boss for a little bit. I, 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 it's destroying us. It's killing us. We live in a world that says, I this, I that. We we live in a world that says, hey, look at me. I'm perfect. Follow me on Facebook. Give me a following. We feel important based on how many followers we have find it interesting. iPhone. It's about now I drive down the road. We were driving down the road here. Come in here. And we were there was an accident. And so we were starting and stopping, starting and stopping, starting and stopping as we worked through that congested area. And I couldn't believe how many people were on their phones in that congested area, starting, stopping. And until we got through there, there was numerous other accidents where people rear ended people in front of them. Traffic stop. boom. Oh. guess I shouldn't have been on my phone. But that's the world we live in, where we're so wrapped up, we're so focused in the here and now, what pertains to me. It's a very dangerous time to be a young person, but it's also a good time, if you keep your eyes on Jesus. This is a promise that we have, is that in this day, in the last days, Daniel says, that if you keep your eyes on Jesus, you will do great what? X exploits. Is that right? Is that what Daniel says? That's what he says. If you keep your eyes on Jesus, get your eyes off yourself, you will do great exploits. So just to share with you a bit about um, how we are to keep our eyes on Jesus and keep our garments white in the last days that God can use us in his kingdom to bring souls to himself. That's that's the, the thrust of my thoughts tonight. Because we have so much coming at us as I was sharing. And so we think about <clears throat> uh, being clothed. Being clothed. This is a concept that starts in the very uh, first chapters of Genesis and runs the whole way through uh, Revelation, the whole way through the Bible. And so we have this interesting story of Adam and Eve who sinned in the garden. We referred to it the other night. And suddenly they realize, you know what? I'm naked and exposed before somebody who can see straight through me. Um, there's, there's nothing hid. And God says, um, Adam and Eve, the clothing that you made are not adequate. Here, let me clothe you. I like that. And God clothes them. You got that concept? God clothes them. That's, that's a beautiful concept, to be clothed upon by God. Because he knows what he's doing when he closes us, Right? And so he closes us with his truth and with his righteousness spiritually when we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we want to be clothed by God. And so we, we go through that, um, just to follow that, that thread down through the scripture, and we're not going to take time to visit all of that, but the clothing that he ordained for the high priest and, and on down through. Um, then we, we have this concept of how that spiritually we come by faith to Jesus Christ, And we are closed, we are justified by faith in his finished work, and we are closed with his righteousness. And so when God looks at us, um, he doesn't see someone whose spirit is naked and shameful, covered with sin and stain. He sees someone who is covered with the righteousness of a son, a granted righteousness, a righteousness that we didn't earn, we don't deserve, it was given to us. That's the way he sees us. But he calls us, to maintain that righteousness, to be careful. Jude says it this way. He says, I want you to be going out into the world. I want you to be pulling people out of the fire. And you're supposed to hate even what? The smell of smoke on your garments. Don't let it contaminate your passion for purity and holiness of heart. To hate even the smell of smoke. If we can grasp some of these truths, the vision that God has for us in, in, in keeping ourselves pure in our hearts. You know, I, I talk to young men who struggle with impurity, and it's not just in our young men. I talk to young people who struggle with impurity in our world, and we think that the answer is, and, it, and it's, it's, this is a must, okay, block down my device, accountability. That's all part of it. That's good. But deeper than that, more important than all that, is that there is a purity within our hearts that we see that we've been granted a garment, a white garment, a spotless garment, and we need to keep our hearts pure. You can have all that on your devices, and you can still. Jesus said, "You can look with lust, and you're as guilty as if you committed an immoral act." To be absolutely passionate about a purity of heart, Jesus says that. That's why he says, "You know, there was a wedding feast, and." <clears throat> The judge of all the earth shows up at this wedding. The bridegroom shows up at this wedding. And how we know this, this is not the wedding in heaven at the end of time. This is it's a, it's a, a feast prepared by the bridegroom. We would say it is the reception or the, the rehearsal dinner, okay? And, and how we know that is that when you show up at the, the final Feast in heaven. The only people that are going to be there are those who have kept their garments white. Okay? So, this is at a rehearsal supper where you were given a wedding garment. That's where we're at right now. We're at the rehearsal supper. We're in the olive press. We're getting ready for that big event. They, who provides that garment? It's not something you bring, it's something that was given to you when you entered the church. By faith in Christ. And the bridegroom shows up. And he says. What's going on? Where's the garment at? Where's the garment? We have to put it on. And we have to maintain it. And of course we have that passage in Revelation. Where Jesus says this. And he's very passionate about us. Very passionate about us being ready. Ready. He says, I'm going to come in an hour when you think not. You're not going to be expecting it. People say, you know what? Things are going to get really nasty, and, and we're going to have famines, and the world's going to be scorching hot, and the economy's going to go to nothing, and there's going to be wars in all the nations of the world, and then Jesus could come. He says, that's not what Jesus teaches, actually. He says, there's going to be people marrying and giving in marriage. There's going to be an economy, because people are going to be building. They're going to be building barns. They're going to do whatever you're doing delivering barns, whatever you do, they're going to be doing it. And suddenly, and he says, keep your garments. Keep your garments, lest you walk naked in that day and people see your shame. Ah! We need to live with that eternal reality before us. So we have a responsibility to keep our garments. There was a man eighteen, twenty years ago, I don't know for sure. And He was called to um, have a devotional at church picnic. And um, he intensely labored to get ready for that. He wanted to share something for devotional at the church picnic, the annual church picnic that everybody would be blessed with and be uh, approving of. So he labored really hard. And the whole way there he was He was studying, preparing, preparing, studying. He finally gets to church picnic, and he gets his food, and he goes and sits down, and everybody's just looking at him, looking at him, looking at him, looking at him. Like, he's sitting there very conscious. Why is everybody looking at me? And he looked down, and here he had forgot to put a shirt on. And his hairy chest was just showing out for everyone to look at. And he just panicked and he went running out to the van and he just wept. He said, how, how could I have done this? How could I have done this? And in the back of his van, there was this blanket and he wraps himself in a blanket and he just wants to go home. He's so terribly embarrassed. He knows that for generations, people are gonna be talking about the time when he came to a church picnic and he didn't have a shirt on. And he's just weeping. And finally he gets enough courage to go back and sit among his brethren, wrapped in this blanket with his Bible. And he doesn't know how he's going to do this devotional because he knows what everybody's thinking. He's so such a fool to come to a place like this without a shirt. How could anyone do that? I'm going to tell you, brothers and sisters, I was so glad to wake up from that dream. I sat up in bed. I looked around. Oh! It was just a dream. I'm so glad it was just a dream. To show up in church without a shirt on is such a horrible thing. What would it be like to be at the judgment seat of Christ and not to have the righteousness of Christ on? There's no waking up from that dream. It's forever. It's forever. Why do we let these eternal realities that Jesus so vividly tries to portray to us slip through our hearts and not change us and not impact us? Why do we do that? Because we're self-centered, we're self-focused. We think we can do it on our own. And we need to come to the place of brokenness. You know, I think about <clears throat> I think about Jacob. When Jacob was um <clears throat> He swindled his brother out of his blessing. He gets the blessing. Yes. You know, Jacob lived life that way. He lived out of his own ego, out of his own wisdom, out of the world's wisdom. How did it go for him? How did it go? Not very good, What did it. Broken relationships all along the way. He accomplished an incredible amount of stuff. He accumulated an incredible amount of assets. But broken relationships all along the way. You know, that's the way it's going to be in your life. Unless you get this straight. There's going to be broken relationships all along the way. We leave this scattered trail of broken hearts and souls. Broken opportunities. When we live out of our ego. And Jacob lived out of his ego. And we see him coming in Genesis, I think it's in chapter 32. He comes to the book, to the brook, Jabbok. And that word means a place of brokenness, a place of emptying out. And it's interesting to me that when we get there, what we see is we see Jacob who's scheming, he's thinking, he's, he's using his wisdom, how am I going to get through this? He gets a message that Esau's coming with 400 men, and he's scared to death. And so he he divides his company up, and he sends them across the brook, and, and he puts them in order of, of his love, right? And the last of all is his favorite, and her sons, and then He's on the other side of the brook. Need a little more barrier here. I'm most important because, after all, I am the master of this whole tribe. And so he's on the far side of the brook. And God meets him there that night. For the first time in Jacob's life, he wrestled with God in a way that he had never wrestled with God. He purposed in his heart that night that he would not let go of God until he had answers for life. A way forward. And he wrestled till near the Break of dawn. He said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And the angel of God reached over and touched his thigh, and his sinew shrunk. From that day forward, he halted. He walked with a limp everywhere he went. You call that a blessing? It was a blessing. It was a blessing. And the next day, you don't see Jacob back there cowering in the back, hoping that everybody else gets slaughtered and he has a chance to sneak off into the woods. You see him walking out in front of his people, being the leader that God called him to be. Now crippled, lame, but broken. Now emptied of his ego, filled with grace, filled with the knowledge that I can do nothing, but God is with me, and that's all I need. A beautiful picture. And I don't know why it is, young people, but in my life, you know, one of the things that I look back on and I regret is how long it took me to get to the point where I realized I can't do this by myself. I need God. I'm done with pursuing life with ego. I'm done shattering lives all around me by uh, pursuing my own interests. I want God. And when I have God, I'm satisfied. It's enough. To be fully satisfied that Jesus is enough and to delight in him is a call to every young person. It's the only way that we're going to keep our garments white. I want to encourage all of you, particularly you young people, to think about the fact that there is a long trail of people that you are influencing and will influence a in life. You know, in our day, we have a lot of people who want to be influencers. It seems like a great thing to do, to be an influencer. Everybody wants to be an influencer. You are an influencer. You don't have to want to be one. You are one. And you do influence people. Your life is touching other people. How it touches them depends on where your heart is focused and where your passion is. When I was... Uh, few years younger, we, we started a barn shop. My boys built the barns. I delivered the barns. It worked out well. And I remember uh, one day, I was uh, driving down the road. I was pulling a 12-foot wide. In Pennsylvania, we had a blanket permit for everything up to 12 foot. And after that, you had to have an escort. You had to have um, a, per, a special permit. and They mapped out all your routes for you. And, you always, and the escort always had a two-way, so you were communicating all the time. And I was going down the road with a 12-foot wide, and I was thinking about Something I think, if I remember right, I was actually preparing for a message while I was pulling a 12-foot-wide barn down the road. And after a while, I had gone a ways, I don't know how far, and it came to me, I forgot. What did I forget? I forgot that I was pulling a wide load. And only by the grace of God, I didn't clear out a bunch of mailboxes. But I forgot. And we do that in our Christian life sometimes. We forget that we're pulling a wide load down the road. with decisions that we make, the choices that we make don't just impact our life, but they impact the lives of those around us. And so I thought about that a bit, and I said to my boys when I got back from that, I said, you know, I really like when one of you are with me. I like when you're escorting. I like when you're out ahead with the two-way. I like when you're feeding information back to me because when I'm driving by myself, I would rather pull a 14-foot wide down these crooked, narrow Pennsylvania roads than I would a 12-foot wide because, when you're out there, you're feeding information back to me and you're, you're helping me to see things that I can't see. You're saying, hey, there's a car coming, car along the shoulder on the right, you can block traffic for me so when I get there, we can make the turns. You got all that information. And, and I so you know, this is the way God intended for us to live. We tend to live as independent people. We can handle it. And particularly when you have all this information coming to you all the time, you gotta watch where your information's coming from. We got some really crazy ideas coming into the Church of Jesus Christ because all you have to do is go hit YouTube and you've got a million things that you can directions you can go. And there's a lot of doctrinal deception coming into churches today because people turn to that for the information rather than God's design way of helping us avoid the pitfalls in life. And so one of the things that was interesting to me is uh, how that young people sometimes make really stupid choices. Do you ever notice that? Really stupid choices. And the older I get, the more stupid some of the choices are that young people make. I'm not insulting young people, okay? I'm just telling you. And, and Okay, so give me, let me give you an example. I know a young man. <clears throat> Who grew up on a dairy farm, and I don't know if you've ever seen a, a harvest store sallow. has a cage on top. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? They say you shouldn't call them harvest store sallows or harvest stores, right? So anyway, on his farm, they have two harvest stores, and they're going to fill sallow, and they need them both opened up. So he climbs up the outside. He opens up the sallow, and then he needs to climb down and come over to this one. And open it up. And he's standing up or looking at this. He says, you know, I don't want to do all that. How about if I just uh, walk outside the cage, walk down this slope, and then make a jump for it. It's 10 feet lower. It's only out there about 12 or so feet. I think the trajectory would land me right on this edge here somewhere. And I can scramble up, jump in that cage, and do what I need to do. And um, everything would be good. Save myself a lot of climbing. So he thought about it for a little bit he crawled outside the cage, he walked down the edge, then he backed up a little bit and took off running down and jumped. Is that stupidity? Is that tempting the Lord our God? And now that he's a married man with children, guess what? He wouldn't do that no more. Why? What happened? What happened? Call it wisdom, right? <laughs> Yeah. I don't know if you remember this. This is a real real incident. I can't give you the exact place. i got pictures of it at home. We're down in Mexico. There was, a, there was a mission down there, Mennonite Mission. Two van loads of young people went from uh, up here in the States down there to work. And uh, while they were there, there was a, a battle between a, a drug cartel and a police force. Just a few miles outside, away from the, the mission. And so a couple of days later, they said, let's go down there. We have some free time tonight. Let's go down there. And they went down there, looked around, and there's all these spent shell cases. And as they were walking around there, someone found a hand grenade, unexploded hand grenade laying there. And they picked it up. And they're like, wow, this is really cool. Let's take this back with us. Now, what do you think would have happened if they would have called mom and dad back in the States and said, you know, we got this hand grenade. It's unexploded. The pin has gone. Um, we want to take it back to the mission. What do you think, mom? We think, Dad, we think what happened. We think what happened exactly no way. <laughs> what are you thinking and so here's the point I want to make is they got in that van, there was two vans, they got in the vans, and they started down the road, and they started passing this thing from person to person, and somebody accidentally dropped it and I get pictures of it at home where it it dropped it. Somehow the the force blew down through the van, tore a hole in the floor. The picture down through that hole, you can see right down to the drive shaft. The vans lit up on fire. They all got out okay. Some of them had permanent damage to the hearing, and some of them had some shrapnel wounds, but nothing serious. It's like God's mercy on our stupidity. And so the point I want to make is this, is that all of us, and particularly young people, are created by God with a need for information outside of themselves. That's the way God created us. He created us to live in community where we communicate to each other, where we're constantly, hey, Dad, there's a car coming on the right-hand side of the road. uh, Find a place to pull over. We need that constant feedback from God through His Word, through His Spirit, and through His people. We live in a very dangerous time when young people want to go it alone. And young people start thinking. And I recently talked to a pastor. He said, you know, I don't know what to do in my church. He said, "Uh, the younger generation, they look at the ministry and they say, um, you know, they just don't got to act together. They're doing this wrong. They're doing that wrong. They're doing this wrong. So he said, we sat down with them and we said, you know, uh, we realize that most of you are not satisfied here in this church. We don't know what to do about it, but here's where we're going to start. We're just going to, uh, we want you all to get together and we want you to, to put a list together of the things that you think we're not doing right and we want you to bring that to us so we can change. And I said, why would you invite them to drop their eyes off of Jesus onto your humanity? It isn't about you and it ain't about them. And if you think it is, it is what? Sin. It's sin to make life about you. Why do you want to make life about yourself? Serious thing. Now, here's the way God created it He's the way He created us. And I found it very interesting because when I studied the Bible, in the Hebrew culture, you were not considered mature enough to take leadership responsibility until you were 30 years old. Mm-hmm. Joseph started to rule in Egypt when he was, the Bible says, 30 years old. David began to rule over Judah when he was 30 years old. Jesus, John the Baptist began his ministry when he was 30 years old, and Jesus began his ministry when he was 30 years old. Why does it go out of the way in the Bible to state that? Because God so designed this that we do not develop as young people the frontal lobes of our brain that makes the decision where the white matter is does not develop until we are 28 to 30 years old. He has designed it that under the tutorage of those that God has put over us as parents, as church leaders, under that in that koinonia, that close fellowship that we're called to have with one another, God imparts His wisdom to us. This is not an insult on you young people. It's just a fact that God intended for the church To function cross generationally, where you have a respectful, open, transparent relationship with your church leaders and with mom and dad. And it doesn't mean you can't be involved in ministry when you're 19, 20, 21 years old. It doesn't mean that at all. It just means that first and foremost, you need to recognize that you need input from an outside source other than yourself. We can't go this alone, we don't have the wisdom. We ask God for wisdom. How does it come to us? It comes to us through his word. It comes to us through his spirit. But it is balanced and perfected through the wisdom that we get from our church leaders and from our parents. And when we see ourselves as being above them, they're not getting it right. We're getting it right. We have a problem, a deep problem that we need to recognize as spiritual pride. Very important, very important in our day. And so I want to encourage you young people to recognize God's plan by design. His plan is that the church function together, blending the generations together. He doesn't want to have a generation gap, but blending the generations together where we are faithful one to another and making choices, choices in the fear of God. I was down at a filling station here some months ago, just down from our place about two and a half mile. And I walked into the filling station And there was a young lady there I'd never seen before, clerking. And her body was exposed, skin was covered with tattoos, and she had a nose ring. And I looked into her eyes, and it was like there was no one home. Did you ever see someone like that? And my heart broke for her, and I wanted to talk to her. I wanted to ask her her name. I wanted to just see who she was. I'd never seen her before. But there was people on a line behind me, and I didn't want to make a scene. And so I thought, well, I'll come back. I'll come back some other time. And we frequent that gas station, so I know most of the people that work there, and I know what vehicles they drive. And as I went outside to leave, I seen this car sitting there that, uh, where the employees park, and it was um, a new car, one I hadn't seen before. And as I walked by it, I stopped because there was a sticker on the bumper. And on that sticker it said, I'm screaming inside and I had to wonder I had to wonder um, where did it start who was pulling a wide load and forgot they were pulling a wide load who um, stopped receiving information outside of themselves and relied upon their own wisdom Who was the first patriarch in that family who stopped having family devotions? How many generations back was it? I don't know. don't have the answers for that. I went back the next day, determined to talk to her. She wasn't there, and I haven't seen her since. Lost opportunity. But I wonder. I wonder if there is someone in her life who looks into her face and says, You know, if I had made different choices in my life, years ago, she may not be where she is today. Brother shared with me here that ego is um, an acronym for edging God out of our lives, edging God out uh, and we go to the account in Genesis and what do we see we see we see two we see a line here. <clears throat> And then the sons of men, and we see the sons of God. Two lineages. And the sons of God began to call upon the name of the Lord. That means that they began to preach. If you look at it up in the Hebrew, they began to preach God's way. God's way of sacrifice, a life of sacrifice. God's way of dependence upon him, living by faith, walking by faith, making choices that honor him. And the sons of men, what were they doing? If you read down through Genesis five and six, what were they doing? They were about muscling their way through life, making life about me, securing myself, building cities, conquering my enemies, road rage, beating up the guy who wounded me, killing him if he injured me. And what happened? If you look at what happened, is those who called upon the name of the God became, uh, name of God became lax in their passion for God. They became, the edge got out, and they started to look over here at the sons of men. And we have this incredible commentary in chapter 6, along about verse 22, where it says that the sons of God looked upon the sons of men, and they seen that they were beautiful. And they started to marry them. And the very next verse tells us this that when that began to happen, God says, I'm done. I cannot work with a people who make outward beauty more important than their inward beauty, than their character. I can't do it. I'm done. We live in a culture where we're edging God out. Do you get that sense? And we all have some responsibility with this, all of us. We're edging God out. We're letting other things come in. That's what an idol is. Other things come in and take the place that only God can hold in our hearts if we're going to keep our garments white. We're edging God out. God is calling his people to repentance and a return to wholeheartedly following after him. That's what he's calling us to. That's what he's calling you young people to. Wholeheartedly following after God. I don't know what it means for you and to you. God will determine that. Uh, But he's calling us to make deep sacrifices. It's still a, a, a life of sacrifice. To follow Jesus is a life of sacrifice. We can't get away from that. It's a life of love, choosing to love God and only God. We can't get away from that. It's a call to worship. What do we worship? What do you worship? What do you stand in awe of? Sad commentary when the outward takes precedence over the great privilege to bear the image of God and to be partakers of his divine nature. Let's turn to chapter 1 of Second Peter. We're not getting along very well here in our passage tonight, so let's, let's look at Second Peter chapter 1. <clears throat> this is the call of God in keeping our garments spotless, preparing for that great day when we will stand before God. Just look at a few verses here in chapter 1. I'm going to take you, first of all, to to verse 10. Wherefore, the rather brethren, everyone together, give diligence. Let's do that better. Wherefore, the rather brethren, give diligence. And what did we just say? Give diligence. You know, there's, there's an urgency about this passage of Scripture for us today. An incredible urgency. You know, someone said, It's like if you're the third monkey. And it's starting to rain. And you want to get in the ark. That kind of diligence. There's only two schedules to go on. But you want on with the desperation that you've never experienced before. That's the concept here. An incredible desperation should, should rest in your heart. To keep your garments white. Give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never, what? This is a promise. <laughs> this is an incredible promise. It's in a promise of guaranteed victory for you. You can be victorious. You can come through. You can have the ability to see afar far off. I want to just call our attention to a few verses in, in the first part of the chapter. He says, grace and peace be multiplied unto you in verse 2. And, and, and grace and peace through, how is it, how is it uh, multiplied to us? Someone tell me. Grace and peace, it's going to be multiplied in your heart through what? Through the knowledge. Through the knowledge of who? Jesus Christ. Is that right? through the knowledge of Jesus Christ, grace and truth. And so there's, there's two concepts here that we uh, won't unfold entirely. But in, as we read this passage of Scripture, there's two uh, aspects of knowledge in the Greek. One is epino, which simply means our intellect. To know, to have a knowledge as in, I know. I know Larry. How well do I know Larry? Well, I don't know him real well, but I do have some facts about Larry. I know he works for a farmer. So I know that. I know he goes to church here. I know him in that way, Epino, And then you have the word knowledge, um, epinosis, which is to know intimately. As a husband knows his wife and a wife knows her husband. It's used in that same sense. And Joseph knew his wife to know in a deep, intimate sense. It's important we understand that because in Jesus Christ the way to keep our garments white is to know him in the way that Paul says with a passion that I might know him. No, epignosis, to know with a deep intimate knowledge. That means that I walk connected to Christ, trusting in Christ, in constant prayer to him. I hold him ever before my eyes. That I might know Him. And that is the only way that we can become, as, as Peter goes on and says here, that we can become partakers of His divine nature. Verse 3, according as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. There you go. The, the, the facts about Jesus are important. They're important, but that's not enough. The facts about Jesus have to lead to a place where I know Him. And that's where I have to apply the diligence. I apply the diligence to learning more about Jesus. But I put my heart's passion into walking with Jesus. To bringing my heart into a grace rest. Into the promises that He has given to me. That I might know Him. According to the divine powers given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It is through the knowledge of Him that called us to glory and virtue. Glory and virtue. What in the world is he talking about there? What do you think about when you think about glory? And why is that important? Anybody want to respond to that? Glory means what? Doxa in the Greek. What's doxa mean? Do you know what the doxology is? What is it? Praise to God. Immortal praise. It's a doxology. What what does it mean? It comes from the root here. To the glory of God. That we live with our focus on Jesus. That we live with a passion to magnify God. God wants to reveal His glory to us. He has revealed His glory to us. But what I want to bring out here is that as you as young people commit to glorifying God, there's something that happens in your heart. When you live to the praise of His glory, that's the whole reason why God saved you, to put your life on a pedestal where people can look at you and say, wow, God is doing a work in His life. It's not about them. It's about what God is doing in response to their fate. So, I don't know that we will take a lot more time here, but I just want to point out these two things, the glory and the virtue. Um, when you think about virtue, in the meantime, you can turn, as I keep sharing here, you can turn back to 2 Corinthians. And I can't remember where I have this, but it's, it's in 2 Corinthians. Virtue is um, like we were talking about oil the other night. You can go to 2 Corinthians and chapter 3. We're talking about oil the other night and the importance of that oil in our lives and how that comes to our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so virtue is, um, if you look it up, the meaning of virtue is moral excellence. And so what Paul was saying, what Peter is saying, is that the way we get a hold of the promises of God and the way that we actually make them become part of our very fabric of our soul to where we are partakers and share in his divine nature, it has something to do with our responsibility to keep our garments white and to grow in the likeness of Jesus. We don't want to stop that process. We wouldn't be faithful to it. And we you know what happened when, when Jesus, when the bridegroom came and the ten virgins were there. that's uh, a sobering thought that there's a possibility that there's many Christians who don't have virtue in their hearts the oil of God's Spirit. The, the virtue is moral excellence. It's the moral excellence that comes from us spending time with Jesus, allowing His Spirit to do that cleansing in our hearts, where we have strength in our inner man, become strong in the inner man. That's how we keep our garments white. Moral excellence in our lives. And how does that happen? I want to try to make this simple. And this is a mystery of the gospel, and I'm going to try to make it simple enough that we can get our minds wrapped around it and actually go from this place and and live it out. And so in verse 18 of chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. It talks about the work of God's Spirit, and we don't have time to read much of this, but Peter was talking about the ability to see, have eyes that can see, and behold the glories of, of God. And so, we we notice here in verse 17, Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image, from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Did you see what he's saying? So, as we behold the glory of God, we behold it, Your, your eye follows your passion. If you make God your passion, and you purpose in your heart that you will live with your faith fixed upon God, your whole body will be filled with light, with the glory of God. And and so what he is saying here is that there is a designated person that we are to fix our gaze upon, and that person that we are to fix our gaze upon, if we want to see the glory of God, is There's a designated person. And who is that? Jesus Christ. And it's in beholding the face of Jesus that we see the glory of God. Now, we say, okay, I don't understand glory. Well, let's, let's see if we can do a little illustration here. Um, what's your name, young man? Why don't you come up here and help me for a bit? Doesn't matter who, just one of you. So we think about Glory. Um, how do you how do you describe glory? You can come right on up here. I need some help up here. All right, there we go. What's your name? Cotton. What is it? Cotton. Okay. Well, thank you for coming up here. Right. You pretty calm, pretty cool, pretty collected. Okay. Do you have anything you want to say? Uh, mm-hmm. Not really. Okay. Well, you're just gonna stand here. We'll get we'll get to something here in a little bit. Maybe if I can remember. If I, if I forget to, to pull you into this, you tap me on the shoulder, all right? Say, hey, I'm still here. So you think about <clears throat> something here. Um, maybe you can help me out. So we're thinking about glory. What is glory? How do you describe glory? So the Scripture says that the ant has a, a certain particular glory And that it goes about its business. It never ceases its work. It, it's always... I mean, they, they, they can go in a whole, uh, what do you call it, a whole group without actually having a leader? They all work together. Ants have a particular glory about them. You ever watch a colony of ants? Pretty amazing, isn't it? And so they have a glory. So now we have an ant right there on that corner. Okay? We're just going to say that. We're just going to pretend that it is. You can't see it, okay? But we're going to pretend there's an ant there. Now, I'm an elephant, okay? And I come over here and stand beside that ant. Who has more glory? elephant. The elephant. Is that right? Why? Bigger. Is it stronger? Absolutely. And so who has the more glory? The ant or the elephant? The elephant. We all know that. We can understand that. We can get our minds wrapped around that. Now, you think about man who is just created from a little bit of dust. And you put him next to God. Who has more glory? Man or God. God by how much? A oh, whole lot. You can't even you can't even put words to it, right? Oh what is man that thou art mindful of him? You know the old testament is full of people trying to get their mind wrapped around why someone who is so amazing, so powerful, so mighty, so huge, so limitless, so wealthy would even care about a little speck of dust. They can't get your mind around that, right? And so we're, we try to figure this whole thing out. Instead of just letting our hearts worship and stand in awe of God, and we need to learn to just be in awe of God. And so we see, we, we tend to, all of us, we do this, we tend to look at our performance, look at Brother Floyd's performance, and look at our children's performance. We're performance oriented. And God says, No, I want you to 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 not do that. I want you to look at my son Jesus. I want you to focus on him. I want you to focus on the grace that you've received through him. And I want you to stand in awe. Our God is. How would you describe God? What what's one word you could use to describe God? One English word. Holy? That's good. That's that's good awesome. That's what I was looking for, actually. Awesome. Holy. He is holy. He's amazingly holy. That's part of it. But He is an awesome God. He, he causes you to stand in awe of Him. That's why I just want to encourage you young people. You know, I hear young people talk sometimes, and they'll talk about a volleyball game, and they'll say, it was totally what? Totally awesome. They'll go out to a, a restaurant, they'll eat a meal, and they'll say, it was tea totally awesome. And so if a meal is awesome and a volleyball game is awesome, what word are you going to use to describe God? Seriously. And if we're going to stand in judgment for the words that we use, we're going to be careful about how we describe our God. We don't want to bring him down to the level of an ice cream cone or a volleyball game. Is that right? Who can bring him down? Don't try to bring him down. It's an indication of our day. Where we pick up the world's lingo and everything is cool, everything is great, everything is awesome, it's it's an indication of how the world has rubbed off on us as people. And we need to recapture the vision that God has for us, to stand in awe of him. So, um, let's say, this is probably a poor illustration, let's say this uh, cup represents the glory of God. Is that all right? Okay. Okay. And let's say it's, it's, it's not, but let's just say it's full and bubbling over. All right? So God wants to reveal his glory to us. Is that true? And so the Bible is the story of God revealing his glory to us. Is that fair to say? And it's like a slow process, isn't it? And so you have the covenants that he made, the promises that he made. He says, this is what I'm like. This is what my character's like. You need to get to know me. I'm a good father. I love you guys. You are my special, you're my peculiar, which means special chosen people. And we need to learn to enter into his abundance, his grace, his his magnificent love. We need to see him in that way. And so this has been the struggle of the authors all through the Bible is to get us to actually open our eyes and to see the glory of God. And let that come in and be that information that comes in and helps us make wise choices about where we direct our passion, our time, our energies, our love. And so uh, the Old Testament was this. God met the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. Is that right? And he called them together. And what did he say he wanted to do? In the revealing of the Ten Commandments. In all the laws that he gave them to try to give them direction. The moral and the civil uh, ceremonial laws that he gave them. What was he doing? He was revealing himself to them. So we're going to take some of this water, and you have a, here we go. Yeah, we can make it wet. There we go. How's that? You see that? That's why I needed a brave young man like you, didn't mind getting wet. All right, now, can you see that? Can you see that? How much of God's glory actually did we use to reveal uh, some of it? Not very much, right? So God revealed himself in a small measure on Mount Sinai. And the reality is that His glory is so amazing and so expansive that through all of eternity He's going to be revealing. How long is that? That is, we can't wrap our minds around that. But He is so amazing that it's going to take all of eternity, longer than all of eternity, just to reveal Himself to you. That is, the the glory of heaven is that we will constantly be being revealed again and again. So we have this. But people can't see that because it's kind of veiled, you know? It's kind of veiled. And you can read the Ten Commandments and you can focus on them. And the tendency of the Ten Commandments is there's no life in the Ten Commandments, no life in the law. Why? It doesn't give you power. It's it's kind of blurred, all right? Kind of blurred. And there's like a veil over your face when you look at all that. And here's the problem with the law, is that you look at the law and you look at yourself and you go, yeah, I'm doing pretty good. What's wrong with him? What's wrong with him? I'm doing pretty good, but I don't know what's wrong with him. I wish he would get his act together. That's the tendency of the law because we're so self-centered and so bent on ourselves that we end up judging everybody else around us when we look at the law. It's just the way it is. And, And I didn't say this. God says this. He says the law had a fault in it. And here's the proof, Paul says, that the law has a fault in it is that God replaced it with a different program. What was the new program? He revealed to us a bunch of his glory When he sent Jesus Christ, his son. I mean, it's the most magnificent. Can you see it now? Can you see it? Are your eyes open? Can you see that he got wet? The glory of God, when manifested in the the life of Jesus Christ, in his death on the cross, is the most amazing revelation of God's glory that the world has ever seen. And the whole argument of the Hebrew writer is this, is if you get your eyes on this, why would you go back to that little spot that is now faded and you can barely see it and had no power in the end to save you? To change the inner man. Don't shake it off. Hug it. Keep it. You want it. You want more? You don't want it to dry. Okay? You want your heart to be a manifestation of that glory, alright? Thank you, my friend. You've been a blessing. The point is this, is that God has revealed the fullest extent of his glory that has been revealed, and he's revealed it in the face of Jesus Christ. And if that doesn't cause you to fall in love with the face of Jesus, and the life of Jesus, and the person of Jesus, why the Apostle Paul says, if you don't love Jesus, you're going to be accursed when he comes again, and we see yet a fuller revelation of him. This is serious. And young people, it's very, very serious and very important that you get your eyes on Jesus and that you follow Jesus with your whole heart in your youth. Don't put it off. Dedicate your life 100% to keeping Jesus before your face, and you will do well in life. You will be a building block in this church. We have a lot of distracted people around us, and I want to invite you young people to think about somebody that you know that name's the name of Jesus. And they have a head knowledge of Jesus. They're distracted. They're elevating their own Christianity. They're feeling good about themselves and not good about the church or not good about the ministry. It's, it's filling our churches. And I want you, to, by grace of God, to humbly go as a servant and seek to disciple and to minister to, to draw near to, to draw their attention back to the glory of God. In the face of Jesus Christ. It's a glorious thing. It's easy to be legalistic. And it's easy to judge people. And it's easy to look down on people. Easy. It's our first nature. It's only by the Spirit of God that we can be builders in the kingdom of God. Who call people's hearts to Jesus. The way, the life, and the truth. Let's be faithful. Young people. I think about John in John chapter 21, you have that beautiful picture where J- Peter has really messed up in life. And where does he meet Jesus? He meets Jesus on the seashore. He's, he's turned his back on the ministry, and he's out fishing. And he, he sees someone over there on the shore, and they come in. You know the story. Don't need to go through all that. But Jesus has breakfast ready for them, and they have breakfast on the shore. I love this picture. It just makes my, my heart so rejoice at our Savior. And he says to Peter after breakfast, let's go for a little walk, Peter. And we know the story. He says, Peter, do you really love me? Play with me. Do you have a brotherly? Just like, do you even, um, <clears throat> well, he says, do you, do you got me? Do you have that? Are you really willing to die for me, to lay down your life for me? And Peter like stutters on that one. And he asks him again. And then he asks him, do you really even have a, a friendship love for me? You know, is your love for me even anything close to Jonathan and David's? And that grieved Peter to his heart. It grieved him to his heart. And then Jesus says this. He says, if you follow me, it's going to lead to your death. And it's going to be a death on the cross like the death that I died. And Peter's distracted by that. Really? And Jesus said, yeah. But don't focus on that. You follow me. But Peter is distracted by that. And he sees John over there and he says, what about him? And Jesus says, none of your business. You can't worry about John and keep your eyes on me. You follow me. And if you can remember that, young people, keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. That's how you keep your garments white. Keep your eyes on Jesus. No matter what happens, keep your eyes on Jesus. That's how you keep your garments white. And so I want to just share one more scripture Jesus has been designated by God as the one through which we come to the Father. There is no other way. As a part of our conviction as Christians, as part of the teaching that we receive from Jesus himself, there is only one way to God, and that is through Jesus Christ. And we need to hold him constantly before our hearts and our eyes. I want to just um, call your attention to chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. We're now in 1 Corinthians, and we're in chapter 1, and you know the story of 1 Corinthians, the church at Corinth, and I'm sharing this because you know a lot of people in a lot of churches. I'm sure you do. You've got friends in a lot of churches. And one of the, the, the curses of our day right now is that we tend to look at all the things that are wrong in our churches. How upbuilding is that? Not very, is it? Try that in your marriage. It don't work. It doesn't. You try it in your own life, and you'll soon be depressed. It's just the way it works. Uh, Paul had founded the church at Corinth, spent 18 months there, building, starting this church. And God did a work. There was no doubt about it. And I just want to encourage you. We're not going to take time tonight, but I just want to encourage you to read Paul's response to a church who was really in deep trouble. I mean, they had stooped pretty low. You think about the problems that were at Corinth and you look at the problems that our Anabaptist churches face today, we're not at Corinth yet. And we're thankful for that. But if we don't keep our eyes on Jesus, any one of our churches can become a church at Corinth, where there's strife and contention and impure hearts and impure actions happening within the church. It's possible. Anything's possible. I want you to think about Paul's response to the church at Corinth. Are you at First 1 Corinthians. Are you at chapter 1? You look at, at Paul's response. He says, I thank God for you, brother. Jesus Christ has been confirmed in you, brother. The gospel has been confirmed in you, brothers. And he's talking to people that have lost their way to a large extent. I mean, most of us would have thrown up our hands and walked away and said, whew, that was a waste of time. That wasn't Paul's response. What does he do in the first 10 verses? Are you there? Are you at 1 Corinthians chapter 1? In the first 10 verses, how many times does he use the word Jesus Christ? Or Christ Jesus? Or Christ Jesus our Lord? He delineates the Son of God, Christ Jesus our Lord. And each one of them words have a very deep and significant meaning that we don't have time to go into tonight. But declares the deity of Christ And the priesthood of Christ, that he is indeed in heaven today, interceding for you and me. He calls our hearts to all these great realities. He calls our heart that he is indeed the coming king, the judge of all the earth, who will bring us into account and every one of us will answer personally for the things that we have done in the body. But I want to just just, um, call your heart to one verse here as we bring this to a close tonight. I forgot that we started at 6.30. We'll bring this to a close as soon as we can. Please try to stay with me. Please. Might be the last time we see each other's faces. We never know. So bear with me if you can. But in verse um, 9, just listen to this, what Paul was saying. He's saying that God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God is faithful. So, what He is calling us to is to two things. He's calling us to focus on the character of God and the calling of God. What did I just say? We're called to focus on what? What? Character and the calling. Character and calling. Everyone together. Character, calling. Again, character, calling. I want you to take this with you. Okay, that's why we're doing this. What was it? Character and calling. What's the character of God? If you read that in original Greek, they didn't have ways to highlight things and all that, and they translated it different than what it is in the original Greek. The original Greek is the emphasis is on faithful. And faithful is the first word in that sentence. It's like this Faithful is God, the character of God. Paul was trying to put that first and foremost in their hearts and lives. And he's putting it right up there in bold letters right before their eyes and saying, You're in big trouble, but here's the truth. Remember the character of God. He is faithful. He will bring every work into judgment. He knows your heart, He sees straight through you. He knows whether or not you're clothed with the righteousness of Christ and whether you treasure that gift, that garment that has come to you through your salvation. He knows that. And secondly, the call of God. What is the call of God? What is the call of God? What's it look like? It calls us into uh, fellowship with his son. Fellowship, koinonia, oneness. Oneness. Koinonia, where there's peace, there's rest, there's quiet. Think about the call of God. What do you think about when you think about a call of God? The prophet years ago up in the mountain, did he find God in the earthquake? Did he find God in the fire? In the fierce storm that was crashing through the mountains, did he find God? Where do you find God? Still small voice. So what does the call of God like in your life? And all the noise that we have today, what's it like? Do you hear it? Can you hear it above the noise? It's really quiet. But it always has this element. Chandler. Chandler. Is that right? What would you do to deserve that? What would you do to deserve the call of God in your life? It's grace. Can't earn it. Can't work for it. It's time that God's people become amazed at the grace of God. Time that we quiet our hearts in fellowship with the Son. Time that we listen for a still small voice speaking to us. We quiet the racing of our minds as we try with human wisdom to figure out what's going on in our lives and the lives of those around us in the church. And we try to make sense out of all the chaos. And we become this quiet, burning light of hope that points souls to Jesus. It's time for that in our churches. Time for that in our hearts. It's time that we treasure the work of that grace in our lives as He has saved us and He is now saving us and He will save us for all of eternity if we're faithful in keeping our garments white. So, young people, be His servants. Go out there and call people, snatch them out of the fire. Call them to keep their eyes on Jesus. Here's the reality. There is a greater manifestation. There is the maranatha. Our Lord will come. And he will come as the judge of all the earth. And he says, if you don't keep your garments, if you allow the world around you and your own desires to snatch your garments from you, you're going to stand before him someday with great regret and great shame. And that shame is going to be carried with you through all of eternity. He says that there's going to come a time when he comes in his full manifestation when those who are not clothed with his righteousness will not have the strength to stand. But what will they do? They will run and cry to the rocks and the mountains and say, fall on us, hide us from the one who has come. We have the opportunity right now to be co-laborers together with Christ. Let's not take that for granted. Let's be faithful. I want to bless you as a congregation. Thank you for coming and letting me share past the time for your patience with me. My heart's full, and I, I love you people. We are co-workers together in the kingdom of God. Let's not allow our hearts to become discouraged, but to be strong in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will do his work and he will build his church. He will have his people. He will have his bride. Let's be a part of that work. Let's walk humbly. Let's have a spirit of meekness, teachable spirit. Let the spirit of God teach us. Let's walk together in the spirit of grace and peace. Let's kneel together for prayer.